0: Hello, friends. My name is Kyle. I surf, I make movies, and I love asking questions. These are conversations with fascinating people I meet along the way. Last summer, I went to Louisiana to host a story for Seeker Network on the everyday heroes involved in the BP oil spill. We met with shrimp fishermen, we met with oil rig workers, and we met with coast guards. Now, as I was doing research for this story... I watched a feature documentary called The Great Invisible, which covers the lasting effects of the BP spill. It was nominated for an Emmy and directed by Margaret Brown. I was so impressed with this story that I decided to reach out to Margaret and asked that she um, would be on my podcast. It turned out that we had some mutual friends. She agreed. I drove down to her house in L.A., and we had a conversation about the oil industry and her journey growing up in Alabama um, to becoming an accomplished filmmaker in Los Angeles. In addition to directing The Great Invisible, Margaret has also directed a number of documentaries, including Be Here to Love Me, a film about Towns Van Zant. Time Out Magazine listed it as number seven on the 50 greatest music films ever. She also directed The Order of Myths, which was a Sundance film festival selection about segregated Mardi Gras celebration in Alabama. Now, I have been sitting on this podcast for a few months, and that's why it sounds a little different than my most current podcasts. It was recorded on an old audio setup, and I was planning to release it along with the story that I hosted in Louisiana, but I still have no idea when that is coming out. And given the current conversations about oil pipelines, and the future of energy in this country, I figured that it would be more relevant than ever to release it now. If you like this podcast, head over to my website, kyle.surf, and if you want to support the show, you can press the donate button where you will be entered into a monthly raffle where I give away all kinds of awesome gear from my sponsors like Patagonia. All right, without further ado, please welcome Margaret Brown. Where did you just come back from?
1: Um, just now from Palm Springs, a little vacation. Vacation time. Yeah, I needed it after. I haven't taken one in a really long time. It was I was actually only three days, and it needed to be a lot longer, but it happens.
0: So I want to start this off, um, because I obviously just returned from Louisiana, and mm-hmm. we linked up before then, Right. Um, to talk a little bit about the BP spill first, um, and then I want to circle around and talk about your filmmaking process, and, okay. Um what you're working on today. Sure. Um, so where were you when the BP spill happened?
1: I was actually in Ecuador when it happened, um, and I was working on another... Oh, sorry. I was working on another film about surfing, actually, in this sort of um, rapidly kind of westernizing town in Ecuador, and um, and then my dad started sending me pictures of um, where I grew up in Alabama, and there was... Like, do you remember the boom that was, like, to prevent the... It was, like, this these sort of, like, orange inflatable buoys. Do you know what I'm talking about? They were sort of to prevent the oil from reaching the shore. And um, and my dad um, sent me these pictures, and they were just, like, horrifying, like, seeing where you grew up in a war zone. So I sort of dropped the film I was making and um, and went and made this new film about the BP spill. Where do you grow up? Um, Mobile, Alabama, near New Orleans.
0: Um, what was that like? Paint that picture for me. <laughs>
1: um, well, it was pretty. It was pretty conservative place, and um, you know, it was weird. Like it took it took getting older and going back to really appreciate it. Man, when I was in high school, I just wanted to get the hell out of there. So, um, but now I really love it, and I go visit my folks and my family like all the time. But, um, man, when I was when I was a freshman in high school, I rode away to like every college because I wanted to get out so bad because I felt so like it was so conservative, and it was just really suffocating.
0: Give me an example of that, kind of paint the picture for me?
1: Um, well, I remember like, I went to public school, but there's a private school right across the street from my house, and I just felt like everyone like everyone had the same like... SUV like you know at church on Sunday you would just pass this line of identical SUVs and I was like why does everyone feel like they need to have the same car my mom told me this story once my brother um, went to like dance lessons when he was in middle school it was like white people like you know it's pretty segregated and white people um, sent their kids to dance lessons from certain families and she said when she got there, like my little brother is sort of strange too, and she got there and he was the only kid who like wasn't wearing like the, a certain blue blazer with khaki pants. Like he, she didn't know, you know, and he was wearing like a, like a plaid blazer or something. And, and she just said like, you know, it was just like someone had sent out a memo to all the mothers that she never got. So it was always like, my dad's a songwriter, and it was always like our family was sort of not exactly, you know, in, in lockstep. With the other families which was great but it was also just sort of you know I mean I'm glad because I think I had to look I had to really like work for my creativity it wasn't like I didn't grow up in New York or something where um or even out here where it's like celebrated to be artistic it was more like people were like what like your dad writes country songs like huh I mean we were just a weird family I guess.
0: Did you grow up on the water?
1: Um, well, we kind of, like, our house, um, was in the city, but in the summers, um, we would spend it all on the water, and I I grew up, I was a competitive swimmer since the age of six, and my first job was teaching kids even littler than me to swim, like, when I was ten, I think I got a job teaching, like, six-year-olds how to swim, that was my first job, I think I got paid, like, $2 an hour, $4, something ridiculously underpaid, but, I mean... So I was just a water person, you know, so I think when the BP spill, I mean, people in Mobile and on the water on Mobile Bay, it's just like such a way of life there. And that was something that it sort of transcends like any kind of political leaning or anything like it's just that people down there are water people. And when the spill happened, it was like I remember feeling like talking to my dad on the phone and to friends of ours on the phone. It just felt like. Everyone was depressed. It was so, that was why I dropped this other movie and went there because I just couldn't deal. You know, I just felt like I had to do something because it, it, I felt like it was an affront to like where I'm from, you know, and I just had to, I didn't know what to do besides make a movie because it was, it was honestly like, I can't really describe it, but it was just this feeling. I remember when we flew back from the first shoot. I remember getting on the plane and flying. I lived in New York then and I remember flying back to New York and I felt like this like depression just like lift off of me. And I realized I'd just been around like everyone in Alabama was depressed. Like everyone was like, what's going to happen to us? And so it was almost, I felt guilty, but it, I felt like this sense of total relief being able to escape. And I felt really guilty about that. But, you know, no one knew what was going to happen, but I could get away and that was sort of... I don't know. It was a weird feeling to like.
0: I feel that kind of guilt a lot. Really, and as a documentary filmmaker, getting yeah. kind of parachute into yeah. areas. Absolutely. And, um, you're on a production schedule. You hear yeah. the stories, and then you're like, "Wow!" And I'm out. Yeah. You know, like that's. It, it, no matter how much you want to live it and ultimately have the audience feel what yeah. you're trying yeah. to portray, at the end of the day, you can go home. Yeah. A lot of these people have nowhere else that they can go. Um, yeah. And I think that it's kind of a, um, an issue that a lot of documentary filmmakers Yeah, for sure. There's a lot
1: of guilt involved. And, well, I mean, I feel, I don't know if you feel like this, but I always really worry about, like, representation. And, because, you know, you edit a film, you don't, sometimes you really know your subjects, and other times you kind of partly know them. And so you're sort of like... Figuring out how to represent them, and I, I don't sleep at night sometimes with that. I feel like it's a huge, it's like playing God. It's a huge responsibility, and I think about it all the time. And so yeah, I feel like there's there's like these webs of like complicated morality around what we do. That's like, you know, not always great.
0: Yeah, what was it like for you um, while shooting um, the Great Invisible? Did you have that a lot? That feeling of um, anxiety of representation? During
1: that documentary um it was complicated well okay so that film is sort of like it started the way it started was I wanted to just be um just be like where I grew up and just sort of what happens when all the what happens when all the like when CNN goes home when you know like um when, like, the famous newscasters aren't standing on the beach in my hometown. Like, what happens then? What happens when it's just me, just I'm left, you know? And, um, but then I kind of started getting interested. I mean, I was also kind of living in Austin, Texas, and I started getting interested in how, like, Houston and people in the oil industry and sort of how did they think about all this? Because the oil industry is really secretive, and no one really, they don't really, like, they kind of, like, you know circle around the campfire and protect each other um but i was like well they know stuff about this that we don't know like what if i ask them to talk to me and none of the majors would talk to me um they kind of like shell almost did went on the record but then they didn't at the last minute um bp talked to me after the movie came out but they didn't talk to me before um and but some indie independent guys who are actually like pretty big independent guys did talk to me because I think they felt like, you know, um, well, like no one, why doesn't the oil industry like let people know? Why are we so vilified? So I was lucky to have that. And I did worry about representing them because there's one scene in the movie where they're all smoking cigars and stuff. And like this is sort of, it's interesting because they wanted to shoot at the scene at a cigar bar and smoke cigars and drink whiskey. And I knew like, listening to that I'm like well do I say no that'll be like a stereotype do I tell these guys like why don't you just like do something drink coffee but that's what they wanted to do but then I think a lot of people when they watch that scene they're so obsessed with the fact they think I I, they think I some people watch the movie and think this is a narrative like people have actually said to me in screens, like oh you scripted that and I'm like no I didn't script it that happened like they were talking to each other they those were their cigars they brought they were wanting to talk you know and so it's like one of those things like well how much like should i've edited it so i had them smoking less should i have not cut like when sometimes when you you know to cover an edit or something you cut to like someone puffing on a cigar should i've not should i instead of just cut to someone looking right. like what's
0: the so, you know yeah and, and I, so this scene if people haven't seen your documentary the great invisible it, it is a bunch of executives yeah talking about energy yeah and if you get past the cigar smoke they make some really interesting pens. yeah one do. thing that, that stuck with me is one guy just says look pick your poison it, i know if it's nuclear or oil yeah. or whatever it is we love our cars we love our energy that we use as americans i mean what's the what's the stat on how much americans use And we're 4.4 percent of the world's population we consume 21 percent of yeah it's something crazy and they make these great points yeah and that was something that when i just went to louisiana um was surprising to me being Mm the i guess the california surfer having all of my preconceived notions about the oil industry it's just it's like it's just people. Right. It's just people. and Some of
1: them surf, too. Some of them
0: surf, too. Yeah. A lot of them surf. A lot yeah. of them are water people. Yeah. Um, you know, we get a ton of our oil from southern Louisiana. Right. Almost a third of the right. U.S.'s oil comes from or is directly imported oh, sure. through yeah. um, southern Louisiana. And, I mean, just the scale of it all mm-hmm. and how many people are involved in the oil industry in one way or another was surprising to me. And also the distinction between the people a lot of people didn't seem to be angry at the oil industry as a whole. No, they're not, yeah. Much more um, anger directed directly towards BP for their negligence. Oh, totally, yeah. Before, um, which Mm -hmm. allowed the spill to happen, as well as after.
1: Or at the government, too. People are really... I don't know if you got that far, but, I mean, people blame a lot of it, like... I remember Keith Jones, who his son Gordon died on the rig, and he told me that when... um, All the families of who died on the rig went to speak to Obama because Obama invited all the families to the White House. Everyone except his family said... When are you going to open back offshore again? They were worried about their friends. They weren't even like thinking like, oh, maybe we should keep it closed and get things safer. Keith said he was the only one who was like, I'm glad you know it's closed out there right now, which is insane to me. Yes, but that's so strong the culture is.
0: Right. So for people who don't know the backstory, after the 2010 spill, Obama put a moratorium on all oil drilling for a period of time, which um, more or less shut down the economy in louisiana because oil industry oil industry i mean yeah oil it's oil and fish and everything
1: yeah both it was huge i mean that both
0: basically got gutted in a single day um but i mean when you look when you look at it kind of on a bit more of a ten thousand foot view it's kind of comedic because while doing this story one thing that was most surprising to me um which uh i mean the the piece that we did is four minutes so this it's Obviously, not all included. Mm-hmm. Um, this aspect of it, but how much money the U.S. government makes off of oil auctions yes. was surprising. Isn't to it me. crazy? Yeah, uh, we
1: have that in the movie too.
0: That was one of the most surprising parts of your film to me. Is that second to taxes, mm-hmm. um, oil auctions are the largest generator for the U.S. Treasury. Yeah, like, so it's
1: very all tied up together. Man. Very all
0: tied up together. Yeah. I mean, so. One lease sale generated 1.7 billion dollars for 56 energy companies, and it is. I mean, one of the latest auctions just happened in the New Orleans Superdome.
1: Yeah, that's where they have them.
0: Where they auction off plots mm-hmm. of ocean. Um, correct me if I'm wrong on any of this. No, I mean
1: I. I remember going. Like we, it was hard to find out when they were having them. I remember when we went, we found out about it like 11. The night before and we were like oh my gosh we have to be there by seven in the morning in new orleans next day we were in mobile and we we figured we we just did it you know but it's not like it's kind of open to the public but then like it's not exactly publicized and you go and you hear the numbers being thrown around and i guess in the oil field it's kind of small potatoes but we were just like this is nuts you know right
0: yeah they just um on march 23rd of this year auctioned off another 44 million acres um, yeah And it happened in the New Orleans Superdome.
1: Yeah, I mean, I wish like, I wish they were more, I wish more people, because it's very interesting to sort of see, I mean, it's not, it's kind of like hidden in plain sight, you know, it's like, um, you know, people could go and watch it. And there were some activists there, but it was just like very, I just don't think people get it. They don't understand it. And one thing I wanted to do with my film was I sort of wanted to peel back the curtain and sort of do like a bird's eye view of like how, how we're all connected to it and how it all works. And I knew that was like really ambitious because it's much easier to kind of stay in your hometown. And, you know, we, one thread is like, um, the, you know, the biola Battery, the fishing community and how it gets pretty, you know, messed up. But I just sort of wanted to show how not, not just that piece works, but then, you know, all the pipelines in the Gulf of Mexico that we're all connected to and the oil guys in Houston and, you know, how it, it all connects to like really all over the world. But like, I mean, you could, you could just sort of, I tried to kind of stick to like the U S Yes, but it was just, I wanted it. It was very ambitious and I didn't know if it would work. It was kind of this big experiment to kind of make it this sort of all this web of how we're all connected. But that was what I thought was the most important thing to kind of deconstruct for people.
0: What do you think are the biggest misconceptions about the BP oil spill that still exists today?
1: God, that's a tough one. There's so many things that just immediately... I mean, one thing that comes to mind is that it's, like, over. I mean, I think, I think that it's safer out there is the major misconception because, actually, Congress made this huge stink about it, but then it actually got more um, dangerous to drill offshore. Like, it was afterwards like it's some things it was like this weird like some things got reversed I can't remember exactly because it's been two years since I finished the film but um but I think like the fact that people think it's safer it's not safer um and I think the one thing I sort of wanted to show was the culture of life offshore um where people are afraid to speak out against their boss because they're afraid of getting fired because a lot of the people that work offshore, I mean, they have this, like, it's a it's dangerous out there. It's a highly skilled job. Um, the people that do it are kind of badasses. But, you know, for someone, I mean, a lot of those jobs are, for, are like, they're, like, very high-paid, blue-collar jobs. And you don't have to have, like, a high school, even, education in a lot of those jobs. But you can work your way up. And I think there's not a lot of jobs left in America like that. And I think... Um, There's a real terror for losing those jobs, and so I think like people don't quite understand the culture and why things might be, you know, just like oh it's okay stamp, you know, and sort of how I mean it's stuff you all hear about like, um, you know, government working really closely with these big companies, but things getting rubber stamped, and I think some of that did get cleaned up actually after the spill. That's one thing that did happen, the oversight. Like, it wasn't self policing so much. But I do think the, the, the culture is what has to change. The, the fear and like the money above all else. I don't really think that changed a whole lot. I think there was a lot of talk about safety, but not real changes on the ground. At the end of the day, no. it's,
0: it's people who, I mean, I can't say that I would make any, I would behave any differently if it's the way that I supported myself and yeah. if I. Talk to a news crew and, uh, you know, made my oil company look bad, I yeah. might not get the call to go back out.
1: You definitely wouldn't. On the
0: rig next yeah. time.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah, it's really tricky, you know, because it's... Um, but at the same time, like, I think one thing the film does really good, the, the, the new narrative film, is that it show. I mean, these people have really pride in what they do, and I think, like, you know, I think that's the new film. The Deepwater Horizon Deepwater Horizon is yeah. the other lines yeah. of the film. Yes. Um, and I think that's something, you know, it, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a job that like, I, I just think it's, it's cool as they showed it because it's really a world we just don't see.
0: Yeah. You are off for yeah. three weeks to a month with a bunch of other dudes. Yeah. Some
1: killing. women, but not many. Some women, but yeah, not many. Yeah.
0: Um, And, yeah, it is a culture that we do not get to see very often. Yeah,
1: it's really... And I got really fascinated with that. And, um, you know, it was... I don't know. I mean, one thing I love about documentaries, you get exposed to worlds that you just would never... You get to kind of, like... I mean, there's the whole thing about parachuting in, and it kind of sucks. But then, for us, it's kind of awesome. Because, like, you know, I get to meet people I would never meet. And sometimes they're generous enough to share their lives with me. And... Let me ask all kinds of stupid questions that, and they humor me, you know, and, um, and with the oil industry, it's like another language. And a lot of people are really generous with me because a lot of it is really technical and I did not understand a lot of it. And, you know, I have like a creative writing and a semiotics degree from Brown. Like, you know, um, I don't, I don't think I've taken a physics or math class since high school. Like, so you know, I, people were really patient with me, and I was glad. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: I was right. asking some dumbass questions.
0: Um, it's, I mean, it, it's important, though, to be able to do that. I think that a lot of times, if you become too much of an expert in any field, yeah, you forget how little the rest of the world knows.
1: Yeah, well, I felt like... And people said that a lot. They were like, well, no one else understands it, too. These questions are good. Like, you know, so I think... I think there is, I mean, you know, in the industry, like, I mean, a lot of people do want the Americans to understand how it works and, you know, like I said, they're proud of it, so. Yeah. But they're also, I mean, I know also there's some shame, I mean, a lot of the people who survived the explosion have these insane, I I don't think I put it in the movie, but I can't remember now because it's been a few years, but, I mean, Doug Brown just has these like horrible nightmares about polluting beaches and covering pelicans with oil. I mean, even though it was not his decision, I mean, that man feels so much personal responsibility and is so haunted by that. And I think... I used to have a boyfriend whose dad works for Shell, and I remember my boyfriend said, yeah, my dad takes the bus every day to work, and that's not a coincidence. Like, he knows what this stuff is doing. He takes the bus every day.
0: Wow. So here, speaking of... um, (laughs) Being able to ask stupid questions. Here's a really stupid question.
1: I feel like I'm not putting enough background, and you're having to. I mean, I think I'm so in the bubble of it. Like, sorry if I'm not. No, I. I, I mean, stuff. we can
0: we can give. Well, here here's the the background questions of all background questions. Sure. Why do you think the BP oil spill happened?
1: I think they were trying to save money, and I mean, I think like they were trying to cut corners to close. It was the well from hell. They were trying to. They were trying to. Um, I mean, you know, I can't remember what was it called. There was some, there was some a phrase that that actually they found out later that like wasn't even a phrase. Like some reason the mud wasn't holding. I can't remember. The, again, this shows my lack of technical remembrance. And I mean, I at one time knew this, but um, but I think that um, you know, I think it happened because. BP told Transocean they had they had to do what they said and they had to hurry, you know, and I think that's why.
0: What do you think needs to change to prevent future oil spills? People
1: have to um, be not afraid to stand up. The culture offshore has to change where people are like... I mean, but it's hard because BP is a much bigger company than Transocean, and Transocean, I, I seem to remember, could have gone under if BP, like, stopped hiring them. So it's, like, one of those things where, you know... I mean, I, 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 I met and talked to a lot of whistleblowers when I was making the movie. And you get fired when you're a whistleblower. Like, you don't get hired again. So you really have to be willing... You have to have... You have to be... Like, one of the whistleblowers I talked to, he was... He, like, had other things he could do. So he could be a whistleblower. He was a smart guy. He had an education. It's hard to be a whistleblower if, like, you have three kids at home and a wife who's just a housewife and you don't have a high school degree like that's a real different story and i think you just might live with a lot of guilt you know so i'm not sure how to change the culture offshore i've actually talked to that when i was i met there were some in washington i met with some safety experts and we talked about this a lot over drinks as well and um and it's, it's something that, that needs to change and and i'm not really sure how it that's not my that's above my pay grade but you know, I, I, I believe strongly that's, that's the right. problem. Fear.
0: Right. Well, I, I mean, one thing that obviously shows from the documentaries that, that you make is that you do understand people, you know, I, I, it's obviously clear, you have mm-hmm. a, a deep understanding of human emotion, what makes people tick. So obviously from the question that I asked, it's not like what created the BP oil spill. Oh, it's, well, it was this pipe that broke. Right, well, it's, right. it's like, what is it in people that allows that to happen?
1: I think it's sort of like I think it's this I mean I think it's a really fundamental human thing. It's like do you view your life as your as your nuclear family like you and your wife and your child or do you view your life as the world is my family? And you know, I think it's something a little bit like that. Like is it my community? Like how small is my circle? I think that's I mean, I think about this stuff a lot cuz I think about um like if you see something, this is going to get sort of theoretical, but if you see something happen that you know is wrong, but if you if you like leak it, it's going to hurt your, your, your family, the people you care about the most, even though you know, and, and maybe one of them did this thing. Do you do that? Like your rig family, for example, if you know this guy you work next to every day for the past eight years, you love him. He's like, you're closer to him than your wife. Like, cause you were offshore when she had a kid or something, you know, like this is your buddy and like, he does something that, you know, is really bad. Do you rat him out or do you like, you know, when it could be, I don't know, like a really life or death thing, or do you protect him? It's that kind of stuff. I think it's just like, you have to make these decisions. Like what's the great, is the, is there a greater good? But yeah. I don't, is that what you're asking? No, it is. And, and yeah. it's, a,
0: it's a really um, good question to ask ourselves. I don't yeah. think that many people ask, ask themselves no. this question because it's a lot easier to, to turn a blind eye. Especially, yeah. I mean, it goes back to elementary school. If you're in a group and the bully's picking on the kid, it's easier to turn a blind eye
1: then, yeah, then know. just stop it I know
0: right there and, and it, it happens at such an early age that we experience that but it's the ex- exact same thing that, yeah. that seems to go through life
1: do you want some wine because I don't have any more beer yeah, yeah. let's have a glass of All right. wine okay, let cool. do it alright do you want to pause this or no we're still okay. going alright we're
0: still going alright um, so I'll, uh, this is a good time for me to tell a, kind of a funny story tell of, of how I met Margaret, um, <laughs> was that I was uh, prepping to do this story out in Louisiana, and um, I was watching as many documentaries as I could, and Margaret's made hands down the best one on the BP spill. So I looked her up on Instagram, and uh, I ended up sending her an Instagram message saying, hey, I'm, making, I'm doing this story, and we ended up having a mutual friend. And um, I, we both happened to be in L.A., and the, the next morning uh, we had breakfast
1: together. So funny.
0: That's how a lot of... Yeah. Is, that's one of that's the best much... uses of social media. <laughs> Cheers to that. Cheers to that. <laughs> to yeah. Social media is yes. uh, possible. bringing points. people together. Um, I want to dig into to that a little bit more, though, because it's it, um, you articulated it well. It's the, the nuclear family. Mm-hmm. Um, versus the global family. And yeah. I think that we all have a little bit of that yeah. um, in, in ourselves. I mean, I know that I do personally. I, mean, I have my brothers, my sisters, mm-hmm. my nieces, my nephews, my family. Yeah. Yeah. They all live with me, and they are, they are and I expect that they will always be number one. Yeah. But we also today um, are in a place where jobs that we have, decisions that we make, do have an amplified effect mm-hmm. largely give, because of technology mm-hmm. right like yeah. you, we can drop bigger bombs now we can have jobs that have just a bigger impact on our globalized yeah. world um, so we have more power without necessarily asking ourselves these theoretical questions yeah. nearly as much Yeah, where have have you seen it in your own life um, shift for people what makes what like what makes someone um, step up to that heroic moment of like the, whether it be the kid standing up to the bully yeah. or the oil worker saying hey this is something that we need to double check or this is something that isn't working right now and standing up to the boss where really... where in your own life have you seen that happen?
1: My friend wrote a book about this, and I think it might be on the bookshelf behind you. And he actually interviewed Stephen and Sarah, I think, for the book. But I think, I, I, I his name's Ayal. Stephen and Sarah. Stephen and Sarah in my movie, um, who were um, Stephen was on the rig when it exploded. He was aroused about, and um, I think, I, 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 um, his name's a. A.L. Press, and I'm trying to see if his book is back there, and I don't see it. It might be. In I'll, a different link, I'll room. link to it. Um, yeah. On my website.
0: Um, yeah, I'll, I'll me think
1: of it. Yeah. Um, it's an interesting question. I, I think it's different for everybody. I, I think sometime it happens because you see something you think is just like really unjust, but I do think it's like, you know, it's interesting because I think about, um, why does, why do like, you know, why do certain people like, um, grow up in areas where there's like in the South where there's like a lot of racism and injustice and only a few people speak out. I mean, it's interesting. It's, it's always people feel more comfortable following. I don't know the answer. Um, I think sometimes it's because something really awful happens and it's just like, they, they feel like they can't be themselves unless they, but I also just think I actually don't know the answer to that. And I think about it all the time. And I think that's why my friend, Ayal wrote a book about it. Cause he was trying to figure it out too. Like what? And, and he, and I, we talked about it once and I have not finished his book but he was just like, there's no kind of... There's not, like, a type of person that does this. It's, like, all types of people. It's not... There's not a... You can't, you know, know in advance who's gonna that person going to be, you know? So I don't know the answer to that. It's a really good question, though.
0: Where have you seen that um, in the world?
1: Well, I saw it in my movie. I saw it um, with the people on the rig. Like, I saw it when... Um, Steven and Stephen so, so Stephen and Sarah are married and um, Doug and Mecca Doug and Stephen were both on the rig when it exploded and I think when um, you know BP tried to make them shut up and not talk about what happened and not talk to me they were afraid to talk to me in fact when I first started trying to talk to them they thought I was a spy from Transocean like because they hadn't gotten any money yet from Transocean because they had spoken out and um, and so I think, you know, they were just living off credit card debt and really depressed and getting nickeled and dimed for different operations especially that Doug needed because of his when he he um he was in the engine room and a lot of things fell on top of him when it exploded and it really hurt him. And so um I feel like I'm I'm doing a little bit circular, I apologize. Yeah, I just hope it makes sense. That's the beautiful thing about a podcast. Yeah. It's, it's the bad thing about wine though. But um <laughs> but um <laughs> anyway, and I'm a lightweight drinker, sadly, but, um, but, uh, I just think that I forgot your question.
0: Um, what, where have you seen people step up in that occasion? Because I mean, I'll, I'll backtrack a little bit. Like the, the story that we were doing, um, Mm -hmm. right for, for discovery was, was much more based around the the everyday heroes um, at, at that time. And one of the, the coolest people who who I had a chance to meet was, was a guy named Dean Blanchard. He's the largest shrimp distributor.
1: I feel like I've um, heard of him.
0: He's He uh, was in a, a Vice doc that they did about it. He's just a classic, yeah. classic human. Like, yeah. so witty, lives out cool. on uh, a place called Grand Isle, which, oh, yeah, is, sure. yeah, which is right near Port Fouchon. It's yeah. kind of the did largest. you go to Port Fouchon? Went to Port Fouchon. Isn't it crazy? Crazy. I mean, yeah. the scale I know it's of, nice. the The scale of... The industry. I know. Is all it's difficult to describe. I mean, they should the, make
1: all children like go on field trips to Port Fouchon. Because I really feel like that is this sort of I'm sorry to interrupt, but I yeah. feel like that's like you really get a sense of like what we're dealing with here when we're talking about offshore energy when you go to Port Fouchon. Highways
0: created yeah. just for oil trucks yeah. and yeah. highway and, and and an entire kind of city built around that. And right next to it is Grand Isle, Mm -hmm. um, where every house in Grand Isle is built on stilts. It's about 12 feet off the ground. um, And it's almost like a a little town on a sand spit. Right. And everything's right at ocean level. And there are shrimp um, boats coming in and out. And we got to talk to this guy, Dean, who um, shrimp season had just opened up... The day before we talked to him, wow! And he said that he was um, this year was actually the worst year yet. Um, he said that he was doing sixty percent about of what he was doing before the skip oh, of the shit, spill. Ellie. But what he one of the reasons that he was so, so inspiring to talk to is that he kept on a lot of the workers, the uh-huh. shrimp fishermen, uh-huh. after the spill happened, right. um, even though there wasn't work to be done, because a lot of these guys were working paycheck to paycheck and they would lose their homes if they got fired. Yeah. Um, And, and he's got money and, and he basically, because he's been working with these guys for so long, kept them on and, um, it sounds, from what it sounds like, like saved a lot of them. That's great. Um, but that was, I mean, on the back end, right. Of the spill, there were, there was a decision that he made. To make that happen, right? And that's a little bit kind of ties back to our conversation about the global community mm-hmm, based mm-hmm. on the nuclear family. Yeah. Um, but it ultimately, like, that, he, the way he describes it is like, these are this is my family. This yeah. is my extended family, and I yeah. will do anything for them. Um, yeah. I would say that that was one of, the, one of the parts of our shoot that stuck with me. Yeah. Almost. And just like the, gosh, the generosity of those people really, yeah. was so cool. I mean, we came in. I mean, he's talked to so much media before and they brought us out these big shrimp platters yeah, and showed us around, introduced us to people. I mean, it was like, it's cool. The Southern hospitality. Was yeah. Like they don't make that force, up. So don't yeah. make that up. <laughs>
1: no. no. I mean, that's one of the things that's like, I love that about the South. Like it's, people are so nice, you know, and it's, it's, it's pretty cool. It is very cool. Yeah.
0: Um, and most of your movies have been about the South.
1: Yeah, they're all about... Yeah, might be going on Friday to Pensacola. I don't know yet.
0: Can you talk about that?
1: I probably can't. Okay, but we well, yeah.
0: can talk about it in a future podcast. Yeah, a future podcast. Um, tell me a little bit about that. I mean, Obviously, growing up in the South, but then leaving and becoming a filmmaker, I want to dig into this uh, a little bit because it's uh, a fascinating story given how successful... You are as a documentary filmmaker. I mean, like at least from the outside, like mm-hmm. you've made it happen. Yeah, yeah. I mean, your your movie, um, your documentary was you know, made with in participation with, with participant media in yeah. participation with participant <laughs> media. But um, uh, I don't know if that was anything.
1: that's good. Anyway, it's true. Yeah.
0: What would you say um, you do differently than other people that you see um, making know. documentaries? What do you um, see? What do you see as um, some of the biggest mistakes people make as documentary filmmakers getting I, into it?
1: I this is gonna this is like a nerd nerd answer, but I feel like um, people don't understand that this is this is sort of not what I want to say but it's true people don't understand that it's like as documentary filmmakers this is not like a hobby it's a business and you have to I I feel like a lot of people are like oh I'll pay myself last and then like that's not your job you know so I feel like one thing I've done is I've always been like no I have to to make movies I have to pay myself first it sounds so obvious you'll be shocked at how many people don't do that and then they can't you know then they're temping or then they're waitressing or then they're you know lock like a, at a law firm at night or something so I feel like it's really important um you know to sort of think about yourself and how if you don't pay yourself then nothing is going to happen
0: have you always thought that way
1: yes I don't know why I'm lucky that I have but I think it's just like I'm a survivor maybe I don't know but um where do you think that comes from I don't know, because it wasn't like I had this, like, really hard childhood. Like, I didn't, my, my, my parents, I mean, like I said before, we were different. Like, my dad was a country songwriter. We weren't like all the other white kids growing up in Alabama. But I think my, well, I know one thing. My father and my mom were really wanted me to be creative and question everything. And, you know, um, they they really encouraged me and my brother both to just sort of, really be intellectually extremely curious and so I think I had a lot of friends that were not encouraged that way or and I think that makes a big difference with kids you know I was I always just felt like I could explore whatever and and I think that's really freeing
0: What are some of the biggest mistakes you've made as a documentary film? Oh my god
1: where to start um, First
0: one that pops into your head
1: I think being afraid, like, of just being afraid, really. Like, um, not really go, like, like not trusting your ideas and trying to make it what you think. Although I don't really do that. I mean, there's been times, I think, when when I felt like a lot of money was riding on something, I would get really fearful sometime. Um, and you just have to, you just have to trust trust your your intuition and your thoughts about what the film should be. Um, and I think sometimes, like, I think a lot of time, like, I get confused if I show my stuff to too many people. I have to really just trust myself and my, like, very close collaborators. Because I think, like, man, I've been in some... Because filmmakers have rough cut screenings. and And I've been in rough cut screenings, particularly for other people's films, where I'm, like, listening to someone tell the filmmaker something and I'm like that person's crazy like I I hope the filmmaker but I think it can be really hard when you're really close to your subject um, to to be like well maybe that person can fix all the problems and just kind of latch on and so I think for me I have to know when to keep it close and when to open it up and that's really hard I think that's probably creatively I would even put that way before me saying, like, the business stuff, like, pay yourself first. Like, sometimes when I go and, like, talk to high school students or, like, undergrads, oh, wait, I have to get this call. Go for it. Yeah.
0: Is he going to be on the podcast?
1: <laughs> hey, you're on a podcast right now. Yeah. they might. Be, you might so be edited this out, though. is what happens
0: before your <laughs> big time is that people answer calls um, on your podcast. I'm going to walk I, away. Just wait. Um, wait until we're huge you and I are listening people will be answering their calls on the podcast but as for now she has um, an important call because she was very generous to make this happen I was just driving through LA and she uh, agreed to sit down with me at a moment's notice while she is in the midst of production and I know how intense those days can be so I'm going to let it slide especially because I'm drinking her wine right now but anyway what should we ask her next there's so many ways you can go she's such a fascinating human being I think I'm going to ask her more about filmmaking um, because she has so much to offer and it's kind of a, a selfish conversation because obviously I'm getting more and more interested in, um, in filmmaking uh, I, mean, I have been for a long time but in the kind of bigger long form stuff that, that she does um, it's really good if you haven't yet You should absolutely check out The Great Invisible. Her documentary um, was, it's so good because it only goes after human stories. And she just follows like five people, whether it be an oil executive or a shrimp fisherman, and does such a good job of um, just showing who these people are. So she's back. (laughs) Sorry. We're talking about filmmaking. Yes. Yes. Um, have you always uh, been good at trusting yourself or is that something that was developed
1: Um, it's hard to know because I you know how you feel like you're, you've always been the way you were since you were 10 but then you read your diary from when you were 10 and you realize you have changed <laughs> um, but with my creative stuff or like making stuff, I wouldn't say creative, like making things. I think when I tend to trust my instincts and my feelings about things, I always do better. But I mean, yeah. And I think I, I think, yeah, I kind of always have trusted that, but I've let myself be swayed by other people, you know, because I, I was feeling insecure or something. But I think in general, when i listen to myself it usually turns out okay but i don't always you know i mean
0: so it usually happens um in a moment that you either make the decision to trust yourself or or go with the other person it tends to be like okay we're having the meeting and like which way I think it's we much go? more
1: insidious than that like okay. i think um it's hard to say without like i just feel i feel like for me it's a lot about like you know when you're making a movie or when i'm making a movie the way i do it usually is Usually now I, I work with work with an editor, and when I'm shooting, um, you know I work with a lot of the same people, and um, and I get people around me. I try to get people around me who I work with over and over that I trust, and you know down to the production assistant or the sound person or the producer, the cinematographer. I mean I, I like my team to be people I know or people that like come from trusted sources that are kind of you know, that my producer Kyle might be like, oh, I know, like, it's in the family, kind of. Which, is you know, which is tricky because I think about how hard it was for me to break in. And so I also try to, like, you know, work with interns that I pay and bring on as production assistants. I want to bring people up, too. I think it was really hard, like, as a young woman to break into film. It was really hard. And I, hopefully it's easier now. Um, but I don't know if it is or not. And I think about it a lot, and I just try to... You know, I, I like to help people. Can you
0: bring me into a conversation that you might be having, mm-hmm. having with an editor when there's a big decision to be made about the direction of a story or what to keep and what to right. How does that actually sound?
1: Huh. Well, it depends on the editor because I work with a few different ones. But, you know, I'm editing a film right now for the um, for the OpDocs page in the New York Times. And um, it's about conservatives in America right now at this interesting moment where Trump might be our next president and kind of interesting things that are happening inside the party right now. And we talk a lot about like, well, do people already know this? Are we learning something new about this? And, you know, um, we talk through a lot of like the logic of the film. And like, you know, I feel like every film has its own has its own logic and you have to figure out the logic. Like every film you're kind of reinventing what it means to be a film, at least for me. Like I think I would be bored if I wasn't every time I make a film, like trying to reinvent the rules in some way. And um, and for this film that I'm making right now, I'm trying to figure out, well, what are the rules for this film? How is this film different? How How is this film not going to bore me? You know? And so we if in this case, we try to think about, well, how is what I'm showing here... Gonna, is someone going to watch this and be like, well, I just could watch Fox News, it would just be this way? Or is this a different side of conservative America than I've seen? You know, Is possibly this going to give me empathy for this person enough for me to actually have a conversation with them without screaming at them? You know, Which I, I think in this country, a lot of us just don't even listen to each other. We're just like, we're speaking different languages. And um, so these are the kind of questions that Robin, that's the editor on this film, Robin Schwartz, And I are having, and it's actually like quite fun when it's like you're trying to figure out this puzzle that no one's ever even seen what this puzzle looks like when you put it all together. Like, that's what's so exciting about making documentaries. It's like, you know, you're like an explorer, you know? (laughs) Would you say
0: that what what I got from that?
1: um, I know, it was probably like all over the place. No, 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 but what what I got from that,
0: tell me me if this is true, is that (laughs) when you follow um, a pattern of logic of Mm -hmm. what's the next question that the audience might be asking here Mm -hmm. and then does this clip fit with answering that question um does does that help take the emotion out of it because it can get like down to the jugular right where you're like but i love this person we spent two days following this person around but but if you just follow it from answering one question logically to the next is that oh well sort of neither
1: because actually because i think like Like, logic in film doesn't necessarily work. Like, you can do, like, a paper cut. By that I mean, like, oh, you do your note cards, and this is the first act, and this is the second act, and these are your beats. And then you can get your paper cut, and you can put it, make it into the, turn it into a film. And it's just the most boring thing you've ever seen. I would argue that there's, like, an emotional logic to a film, and there's an emotional through line. And sometimes you can have a rough cut that makes no sense, but you can feel this, like, there's, like, you, you are moved by it. So, to me, like, the most important thing usually is either, like, usually it's, like, are you moved by it? But then sometimes it's, like, is this something I've never seen before? Is it so exciting because it's, like, innovative? So, for me, those are the two things I look for, like, kind of a different way of, like, just mind-bendingly cool or am I, like, so moved by this? And hopefully it can do both. <laughs>
0: Will you, bring me into, will you bring me into a big decision that you've had to make uh, in the past on a piece?
1: Sure. Um,
0: and what that walk me through actually that conversation that is had because most times the audience, the people listening right now, they just get to see the final product. But take me into the first one that comes to mind of like, Ugh, there's a big decision to make, and yeah. we gotta talk about it and move in one way or another.
1: Okay, I'll, I'll try to do that. I mean. I just made... I've, I've started recently... Like, I made The Great Invisible. That's the last feature I've made as a director. And then I started doing these shorter pieces. I think more is... I was thinking them as, like, palette cleansers. Because making a feature is just, like, hard. And The Great Invisible was really hard. And it took a long time. And it, and it was, like, driving all across the country constantly, you know? And, um, and, you know, for a film that's about oil, you start to feel guilty when you're, like, flying everywhere and driving. And, you know... Yeah, a, a helicopter war zone that's about to be. Oh yeah, down. this is this is my life, in Los Feliz. Um, so there's an old
0: um, joke that I'm going to say way too many times in the say podcast, it. but you know why um, thunder comes after lightning? No, because even God has to wait for audio.
1: <laughs> that is a nerdy joke. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a nerd. I'm going to say that's a good one. Um, that I will use that in the future, and I can't believe I didn't already know that gosh um so i just made this film called the black belt which is about voter suppression in alabama and sorry um and again it was sort of like we went and shot in selma alabama and um the film is like a poem it doesn't have like a structure that's like a first second and third act it's just sort of like like a haiku that's about life in selma and I think a lot of times with documentaries, people are really afraid to kind of color outside the lines um, and make something that's not like expected, like medicine, like a lot of documentary is. And, um, and this film, you know, I really let myself just do what, what, what felt more like a poem than what felt like a story as we traditionally think of it. And I think that's maybe an example
0: What do you, um, when would you say that you feel, um, most alive?
1: Um, when I feel most alive, that is a good question. I remember this one time in Ecuador when I was surfing, it was like sunset. And, um, I think I always think about that moment. Um, it's, I don't even know how to talk about it really, but, I sort of realized this is not about filmmaking, but I sort of realized that um, there was, I was like in this specific moment that would never be repeated and I felt really alive. But there's also this thing that's different about documentary that's less zen like and more addictive, I think, which I'm not sure if it's healthy or not, but it's probably why I make documentaries and not narrative features because I think. I like narrative features a lot too. And I like this ability to kind of create a world, but we talked about it earlier. that just like, I love the adventure of waking up and not knowing what will happen. And that being my job to like harness that and not even harness it. It's not, you can't harness it. You go with it, but you're being pulled by it. You're being pulled. Yeah. And I think like, I'm addicted to that, you know? And, um, and I, and I, and I think it's, it's also like pulled my life in places that are really exciting, but not very stable. And I'm trying to, I'm trying to sort of go to, toward a little stability as I get older. Like I, I don't think it's always been like the best way to live. Um, but it's, it's almost like being an addict, you know? Um, so I don't say oh, like, you know, yeah.
0: Walk me through uh, one of those days. Cause a lot of people listening have never made a documentary film and, I don't think that they understand that yeah. addiction of the rush of making, what do you,
1: how would you describe it? Cause you have, you do the well, same thing.
0: I would describe it as having an opportunity over and over again to get into a situation that you would never fucking get it. Yeah. Like you're, yeah. it's like, there's no chance right. that you would have a chance right. to be here or get to ask this person as many dumb questions I know. as you yeah. want yeah. and have this fully immersive totally yeah i'm sure people um i I, correct me if i'm wrong on this at all but like i get because a lot of the documentaries that i make are about um social or environmental issues you do this as well yeah oh wow it's this like philanthropic right um activity that you know in a sense like sure whatever but like ultimately it's it is an addiction and it's this selfish uh it's it's selfish. It's like it's to be like I want to I to do this. Like, yeah. What when am I ever going to get a chance to do this? Yeah. And and yes, there are um, like as you said earlier, like a lot of moral um, decisions that you need to make about how you're going to tell the story. Yeah. But ultimately, it's it's about waking up in the morning and knowing that I'm going to learn something, and I, that I don't know mm-hmm. when I now as i'm leaving my bed that is probably going to stick with me for the rest of my life yeah and when i look back on my life I mean, yeah. i'm only 26 <laughs> but when i look back on my life so far and i ask myself what were the peak moments in your life yeah the moments where i was like i am fully here yeah. i need to be really on with yeah this person, i need to ask them good questions yeah. Or i need to very simply and quickly articulate a situation yeah. for people mm-hmm. um I just love those moments yeah just so fun I know They're just
1: so fun um,
0: and and it is a gift because I mean in a sense because my um, what what it is that I learn um, will be passed on to other people yeah if, if the red button is is recording and other people can glean that wisdom um, of any situation that someone has has to offer me and, and ultimately I, I find that when I am and at my best, mm-hmm. I see myself less as the person making it happen and more as a conduit. Right. The energy is oh moving. Oh, God, that's so funny. The energy that's... is moving through. Yes, and, 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 yes. And it's, it's like I'm just a conduit, and it's energy is moving through me onto someone else, and it's not sticking with me. It's yeah. not stopping.
1: Totally. No, I, that's so funny. I was just talking about that today. Um, it's so interesting.
0: How does it feel for you when you wake up? on a big production day what would you say are i just try to be
1: completely present and like i just get really excited um and i just try to be like like just open to what's happening but sometimes it's really hard because i get so excited that i can't sleep the night before um and and so sometimes on shoots i've gotten like I get so amped up that I have to. I like got addicted to Ambien on a few times on shoots because I just couldn't sleep because my brain wouldn't turn off at night. So I mean, I think. I mean, that's not like the worst addiction, but it certainly was hard to kick. You know. Do you meditate? I do. Yeah, I do now. But I didn't then. Um, now, now I don't take Ambien anymore. But um, now what's I meditate. Your, what's your
0: meditation <laughs> practice?
1: Um, well, mainly I just use Headspace. You know that thing. Yeah. Um, but I also have like a um, kind of, I think it's called open heart meditation where I have a mantra and, but I don't always do that. I, I, I kind of mix it up. Like I sometimes use headspace. I sometimes just meditate for 20 minutes. It sort of depends on what I feel like I need. Um, Cause headspace is prompted or it can be, or I like some of the prompted ones. Um, how about you?
0: I use calm, which is basically the same. It's, it's another 20 like, minutes meditation or... app. Um, I'll usually do about 15 minutes. Yeah. Um, It's either a 15-minute meditation. Uh, There's another app that I really like um, called the 5-Minute Journal. I've heard about that. And it it just prompts you with a few questions that say, um, what are three things that you're grateful for today? Mm -hmm. What are three things that would make the day great? Yeah. Um, And then a series of I am statements. Yeah. And that helps me um, because I can get so over amped and like have set such high expectations Mm -hmm. for myself and it's particularly helpful on production days. That's good. Asking the question, what are three things that would make this day great? Yeah. And it's like, okay, just nail the interview with this one person. Right. And, And I find, um, I mean, with a lot of people who I listen to on various podcasts who are highly successful people. Um, one thing that, that is consistent with all of them is they, actually do less in a day that's and really think of, smart they think of what are the three things that I can get done today that will make this day great yeah and they're usually the th- three things on your to-do list of 30 things that are the hardest to look at oh totally you're like, oh, I really don't want to do that right now, right yeah. now. I, I do it. okay fine I'll do it but then you oh, go to I bed know. and you're like hell yeah yeah, I did that, and at the in the evening, the app. Um, this is totally. <laughs> I want you to know that the app is not paid for <laughs> this, this sponsorship, but I am hundred percent behind it. Do you want some more wine? You sure, don't have to. I'm sure, a I'll, have, I'll have a little You'll more. A wine. tiny I'll bit more. On, okay. a bit, okay. Uh, More rant on. Okay. Um, on a column is that, uh, at the, or on the, um, the five minute journal is that in the evening it says, "What are three great things that happened today?" Mm-hmm. And it 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 allows me to compartmentalize my days. Um, In a way where I can think, oh, these are three great things that happened. Even if it's simple as like, man, I had a great moment out on the dock when Dean gave us that shrimp platter. (laughs) and That was so unexpected and so cool. That is so cool. And then it asks, what are three things that could have gone better? And Mm -hmm. then I'm like, well, I shouldn't have interrupted him when he was going on that. Uh, answer that I thought was too long, and I had to get on because we were on a production schedule. I should have just waited for, for another 30 seconds. Or, you know, I really should have treated this person better I in feel the that day. Way all but, the time, yeah. but ultimately, it, it kind of makes things smaller and more doable. Um, and one of the best books that, that I've read, um, in recent history was called How to Stop Worrying and Start Living. Mm-hmm. Um, it's one, one of the Dale Carnegie books mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it's like written, if you haven't read the book, it's this read it. old school, um, kind of like, well, just like, I, I it's hard to describe but like, it's more just like, this is the way things work. Like <laughs> that he also wrote a book called, um, How to Win Friends and Influ- right. Influence oh, People. Oh yeah, I know that book. Right. And it's all about like, well, like to. To get someone to really like you, like ask them about themselves and you know learn their name, right. and things like that. But how to stop, start, uh, stop worrying and start living, goes into that if you compartmentalize your life into days and think about those about those questions, like what are three things that would make this day great, and then what are three things that could have gone better it makes it, I find it makes it so much more doable rather than me being like, I'm on top of the world. And then like, Oh God, I suck. I can't get out of bed. Yeah. I, I, Cause I've had issues with that in the past, of like having really high highs and low lows. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've found that those simple tactical practices have helped me, um, maintain a more even keel.
1: Do you think a lot of big wave surfers are like really addictive personalities? Uh,
0: Mm, I would say that big wave surfers are more, the, a, a more consistent uh, personality, personality characteristic is that um, we're very exper- experience driven. Mm-hmm. Like we live life based off of valuing experiences mm-hmm. higher than all else. Yeah. Um, and a lot of that can, um, for certain people, turn into kind of an experience junkie. Where it's like, going here, going there. I mean, like, when you look at a, a swell that, that happens, right, it doesn't just hit one place a lot of times. If there's a south swell, like, there's, one, there's a big south swell hitting next week, right? Mm-hmm. And it's in Chile right now. So you could be getting amazing waves down in Chile right now. Mm-hmm. And then you could track that swell north.
1: You'd have to have a lot of money.
0: Or you have to have a... Sponsor. A sponsor. And yeah. a lot of pro surfers have the sponsors yeah. or they have the miles to be able to do those flights. Like I was down in Chile last year yeah, um, during one of the big wave contests and the, a lot of the guys surfed the swell in Chile. They left that night and flew up to Mexico to a place called Puerto Escondido yeah. which is also one of the heaviest right. big wave spots in the world yeah. and surfed the same swell in Puerto Escondido Yeah, and then surfed the same swell in California. And it's that kind of high experience and that it's not... The swell isn't going to last and you don't know when the next one's going to come that creates that kind of... Energy. Energy. I mean, I have a a friend uh, who's a Hawaiian um, big wave surfer named Trevor Carlson, a really good big wave surfer, um, who consistently this last year uh, surfed a wave uh, in Maui called Jaws, which is Mm -hmm. one of the biggest waves in the world. And then would take the red-eye flight overnight to California to surf it the next morning at Mavericks.
1: Are you kidding?
0: And he would be out there the next day (laughs) surfing Mavericks. Wow. On the same swell. And on one occasion, he even took a flight south down to Baja to surf the following day. Um, at a wave called Todos Santos Mm -hmm. the same wave he served three time three different spots or in the same swell he served three different spots so uh, to answer your question better yeah there are those addictive personalities um,
1: that's not everybody but
0: it's not everybody And
1: this is what you hear probably yeah I think I think it's what you hear or I would say that
0: it's much more of an experience yeah uh, experience driven personality are you like that? um i think i know when to stop I, I have a better sense of knowing what uh what my limits are energetically
1: How, What is that what do you mean
0: mm, i mean i know like if i've been surfing a swell for four days and it, I, like if i've been surfing a, a wave like mavericks for four days straight to be like okay, you know what that's totally not true i'm fucking right now i absolutely will just keep going <laughs> <laughs> i'm totally i'm talking about the person that i want to be yeah but i'm really not yeah um For you so you are addictive i'm i can be addictive with experiences um especially when i know that the opportunity won't last forever mm-hmm. uh but
1: but there'll uh, always but be another wave there but, will
0: always be another wave but it and, doesn't
1: matter does it
0: um well, it's it's one of those things where it's actually. Uh, I mean, when you think about the lengths that you go to to get that right. great wave, right. I'm not talking about just going out and have, going for a surf, but right. like, getting the wave of your life. Right, um, you will travel halfway around the world, spend all of your money just for maybe a 10 second experience, um, and that and all you need is one, and you get that 10 second experience or or you know best barrel of your life. And it really—I'll um, tell you one thing. It, it makes the rest of life feel pretty dull for the week following. I bet it does. Yeah, I've had—I I would say that that's actually like one of the biggest things that people don't talk about in big wave surfing is like the crash that comes after. I mean, it's—it is for real. Your adrenal glands are toasted, um, and I think that the best big wave surfers are actually the ones that are are. The most even keeled. Uh-huh. Um, there are a few guys who I'm friends with who are so good, and what makes them so good um, is that they are able to maintain their energy levels for longer periods of time, mm-hmm. um, and they don't get as uh, excited as easily as mm-hmm. other people. Yeah, um, and it's something that I'm working on for sure. I yeah. mean, me- meditation helps me with that, and, yeah. and that. Uh, It plays into whether it's big wave surfing or production. Sure. Like, I mean, you have more energy on day one than you do on day five of a production. I mean, a production day is a 12 to 16 hour day where you're running around interviewing people. It is that similar... Uh, I wouldn't say it's adrenaline I mean it's an adrenaline rush it's different than big wave surfing but it's that same like this is a new thing I don't know what's going to happen it's different than the mundane it's definitely not the 9 to 5 it's like something exciting is going to happen and I need to be prepared for that right yeah Um, and I, I would say that probably the best Producers and people like field producers—the ones that are able to maintain for absolutely their energy throughout and on day five, be like, "All right, guys, yep, the sun's shining. Yeah, it's time to get going."
1: Absolutely, the ones that don't, you're like, "Not working with you again." Right. Yeah.
0: Well, it's really it's it's almost like a, a first date. Like it's easy to look good on a first date. Yeah. But, day five. Day five. Yeah. <laughs> a couple a couple months into it or something. Yeah. Like, oh.
1: This is the real person. This is
0: the real person.
1: Yes. Exactly.
0: Yeah. Um, so it sounds like you've developed a good, uh, team that you work with. Yeah. How did you cultivate that?
1: Years. Um, also just finding like what kind of people I like to work with, you know, like, um, like, uh, yeah, like, um, uh, I don't know. Like it's, it's like personalities just sort of, I think it's what you're saying about people who have an even keel and, you know, I think people who can, who can be, they don't talk too much. I think that's a big thing. I think some people in production, they just talk, 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 and it can kind of really dilute the energy to like paying attention to what you're doing. And I really don't like that. I like, I like kind of like, kind of like a loose, not loose, but just sort of like a open, but focused, you know? And, um, yeah, I, I guess it would just be like a professional crew that's creative. Um, And I have, I have sort of a rotating group of people that I just sort of like, but it's, it's, it changes. I mean, I'm always, I'm always opening to meeting new people and finding new collaborators, but, um, but yeah, you know, people, people who have a really good eye, you know,
0: what are some of the other qualities that you look for people, uh, looking for people for in people?
1: uh... Um, sense of humor, (laughs) um, you know, ability to collaborate, like, um, I don't know, creative is, I I don't know if I want to use that word because it's not, I mean, sure. Like, I feel like it's sort of a granted that people are creative, but, um, people who are not going to be like, okay, like it's been 10 hours and you know, like who get kind of bitchy at the end of the day. I don't know how to, I mean, I don't know how to say it. Like it's, um, I don't, I don't know how to quantify it. I just sort of, it's a gut thing too, I guess. Yeah. Yeah.
0: It, it is uh, fascinating to me how much of people being successful in the uh, production world comes down to human relationships. Oh my God.
1: Like 90%. 90%. Yeah. And
0: even whether it's produ- whether it's um, human relationships, you know, being someone who's able to crack a joke with the production mm-hmm. team to lighten the mood or with the subjects also. Like you so have to be really best good with subjects. I've worked with are the ones that are just able to make your people who you're going to shoot feel comfortable before you press the right yeah.
1: button. Yeah. Well, it's funny you should ask because I feel like a lot of the things I'm thinking of are just things I take for granted now and don't think about because I've done them so many times now. Um, that I don't think like, yeah, of course it's ability to make people feel comfortable. Um, I worked with a cinematographer once who was a great DP. He was mostly a DP for like big narrative movies, but he shot sometimes for documentaries, but he didn't know, he didn't know how to deal with people in documentary environment at all. Like he wasn't, he was a brilliant shooter, but he couldn't, he didn't understand that these are like real people. You can't like, he did this thing one time where we're shooting something verite, which means like you're just sort of not interfering. And, um, that's the one way to explain it, but he would like he he got up and he started moving these people, and they were like, "What are you doing?" They were having a conversation, and he acted like they were actors in a scene. It was so wild, um, which sounds really obvious that you don't do that, but I think he was so in his own mind and so accustomed to thinking of people as sort of like pawns or something.
0: Well, it's a big difference between narrative documentary, narrative uh, shoots, and and yeah. documentary is. Is that, I mean, with narrative, like, wow. So I was just chatting with um, the, right, production the production designer. was yeah. like creating a fantasy world right. in those yeah. of films, right? But with documentary, you're shooting yeah. and seeing what it is that you can get.
1: Yeah. But I like to actually, like, a lot of my cinematographers come from a narrative background. Like, I don't really, I don't know. I like to work with people who cross over because I think they they might have a more interesting eye at least as cinematographers. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, so I've, I've definitely encountered that. I feel like I'm losing my... What time is it? I might have to... No, let's get going. Yeah, no, yeah. Fine. Is that okay? Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm going to ask
0: you a couple more questions. Sure. Um, I'm going to ask you one of my favorite questions. Um, who do you think of when you think of the word successful?
1: Well, I I don't really... I don't know. I don't think I successful I don't know the answer to that like I think I can think about things that I would do that would Hmm. (coughs) I feel like people I don't know I just watched the Olympics and I feel like that's always very moving to me even though it's this big media spectacle but I don't know i I watch someone like Simone Biles who's like <clears throat> so tiny, and I think about all the hard work it took to get to where she is and how young she is, like I don't know seventeen sixteen, and just the life she's had to get there and I think but I don't know if I think i mean that the focus that would take the sort of heroism to me that's successful, but it's different than thinking of you know like my dad who kind of went against his family to be this creative person and, like, really did not do what he was supposed to do. And I think having the, like, sort of chutzpah to do that, that's all... I mean, there's just so many different definitions of successful, you know. Um, usually I think it's, like, sort of against the odds, and I don't know, what do you think?
0: Uh, successful? I, yeah. I, I It's it's a, an interesting question to me because, I, because a lot of people have uh, different definitions of success and yeah. I find that also a lot of people within filmmaking uh, it's an industry where people are constantly pivoting from one position to the next yeah. and there's never really that like filmmakers aren't happy in the position that they are Yeah. which I mean the first time I met you and we had breakfast uh, one of the questions that I, I remember asking you was like what is it that you want to do? Like what do yeah. you, you want to do? And you're like man I'm, I'm kind of doing it like yeah. uh, when I grew up in Alabama I wanted yeah. to Be a documentary filmmaker.
1: I didn't want to be a documentary filmmaker. No, I just wanted to, like, make stuff. You just want to make stuff. Yeah, I don't think I wanted to be a documentary filmmaker until I started making documentaries. I always thought I would make narratives.
0: What do you want to do... This is the last question. What do you want to do um, in the next five years moving forward?
1: Five years? Um, Well, I want to make this narrative I've been working on for a while. Kind of for a long time, really. And... um, yeah, I think I creatively that's what I want to do. And I think I want to, like, figure out a way to be more stable in my life because I feel like – I mean, I love the gypsy life, and I, I don't think I'll ever really stop it, but I'd like to figure out a way to be a little bit more stable because I think its it's been kind of crazy. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Thanks so much for listening. If you want to get in touch with Margaret, reach out to her on Facebook or Instagram. If you like this podcast, share it with a friend. Give it a rating on iTunes. Get outside and have a beautiful day.